right, all right, all right. Greetings, fellow paranormal investigator. You have tuned in to Renegade Files. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting our pirate radio signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode number 14, Bigfoot. Tales of a man-like creature in the North American woods stretch back to the Native American legends, and most parts of the world have their version of this cryptid. The term Bigfoot first appeared in the 1950s, and the growing television and radio industry propelled these stories across the nation. Perhaps no other paranormal subject creates such a clear divide between believers and skeptics. The fact that no Bigfoot has ever been caught, killed, or found dead, combined with a centuries-old tradition of stories, tales, and legends surrounding the creature, creates fertile ground for debate, which will last until a creature is captured or definitive proof is offered up. But there is evidence, some of it credible and some of it analyzed to a nauseating degree. So unpack your sugan from your saddle, grab a seat by the campfire, get a cup of coffee, and come with me as we explore the tall tales of the tall creature known as Bigfoot. 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 When I was a kid, I was fascinated by Bigfoot. I grew up in the golden age of Bigfoot, you might say. There were shows on TV, and the country was thirsty for some adventure and mystery. Stories of Bigfoot permeated every state. And if you didn't see Bigfoot in the woods, you would definitely see him on t-shirts, hats, and bumper stickers. There was a time where it seemed like Bigfoot was everywhere. He fueled our collective national imagination, connected us back to the land, reminded us of the mysteries of nature, and created some ties back to our Native American cultures, which had been broken in so many ways. The modern popular story of Bigfoot comes to us in a somewhat dubious way, and it all began on a roadway construction site in the remote northwest of California. In March of 1957, a Northern California road construction crew headed by Ray Wallace was puzzled to consistently find their large metal 55-gallon oil drums tossed about the job site each morning as they arrived. On one morning, they found a 700-pound equipment spare tire had been thrown into a deep ravine. After a break in their work over the winter of 57, Construction on the road resumed in the spring of 1958. On one of those mornings, workman Jerry Crew arrived at the site to find giant footprints around his bulldozer. Other prints were found in other locations until Jess Femus, one of the workers' wives, reported the prints to a local newspaper. It was this article that coined the term Bigfoot for the very first time. Newspaper reporter Betty Allen first suggested making plaster casts to record the footprints. She also spoke to local residents, including Native Americans, who added their legends and anecdotes to the story. Eventually, 
One of the articles was picked up by a newswire service and the story of Bigfoot, with pictures of these plaster footprint casts, became national news. In 2002, Ray Wallace, the construction foreman, died, and at that time, his son came forward with carved wooden feet he said his father had strapped to his boots to make the famous footprints at the job sites. Over his lifetime, Ray Wallace, while considered by some to be the father of modern Bigfoot lore, was eyed with suspicion by many other cryptid researchers. Wallace claimed to have seen over 2,000 UFOs in his day, which makes him a UFO repeater by any definition. Wallace saw Bigfoot hundreds of times, and he once claimed to have captured a Bigfoot, but was unable to ever produce this trophy game. But just because Wallace was a hoaxer doesn't mean that every Bigfoot sighting or experience is also faked. While modern American fascination with Bigfoot may have begun with the Ray Wallace hoaxes and the resulting news reports in the late 1950s, stories of man-like primates living in remote forests have persisted since the ancient legends of the North American native tribes. The Inuit tribe calls the creature the Wendigo, the man-eating evil spirit. Wendigos are said to be a demonic creation resulting from cannibalism, which sounds a lot like the origins of the Skinwalker. For a look into more Skinwalker lore, be sure to check out Renegade Files episode number 11, The Mystery of Skinwalker Ranch. Jack Fiddler was a Cree Indian who claimed to be a Wendigo hunter, and is said to have killed over a dozen of these creatures. However, his last Wendigo killing resulted in his arrest and conviction when he was in his 80s in 1907, his victim actually being a Cree woman. Fiddler's defense asserted that the woman was possessed by a Wendigo and would have soon transformed into the man-eating beast. The Hoopa Indians called the creature the Uma, or forest demon. All other tribes in the Pacific Northwest have their version of the Bigfoot, or wild man-like beast. But these legends almost universally describe beings that are much more aggressive and violent than the shy, almost skittish Bigfoot we think of today. As far back as the Vikings, we have encounters that sound like descriptions of Bigfoot, in 986 AD, Leif Erikson described seeing a tall creature covered in hair with large black eyes. This matches the description the Mi'kmaq Indians of Eastern Canada have regarding a fearsome ape-like man of the forest. In the Carolinas, as far back as the 1700s, stories were told of large primate monsters up to 8 or 9 feet tall with broad shoulders and long arms. In 1792, naturalist and explorer Jose Mozino was surveying the coast in British Columbia when locals told him of a Bigfoot creature they had seen while hunting in the area. Mozino's descriptions in his expedition diaries are some of the earliest accounts in recorded history of a Bigfoot sighting. The journal was written during a time when the exploration of the Pacific coast was underway by both the Spanish and the English. 
In his journal, Mozino writes about a creature named the Matlog, which dwelled in the mountains and terrorized the tribespeople. Matlog was described as having a huge monstrous body covered in black, bristly hair. The creature's head was said to be similar to a human's but much larger in shape. The animal had strong fangs similar to a bear or a wolf. Its arms were long and it had curved claws on its fingers. It was known to emit a terrible scream. The tribes people believed that the creature was some type of a demon. Another early account in the same area involved a trapper named Mukalot Harry in 1928. Harry had left a company of his Nootka Indian guides to travel up the Kanuma River in his canoe. At nightfall, Harry made his camp and settled down in front of a campfire. Suddenly, he was lifted off the ground and carried away. Unable to break free from his captor, Harry was carried, wrapped in his own blanket, some two to three miles away, and at first light, he found himself in a horrifying situation. Harry had been abducted and taken to a camp of Matlog, or Bigfoot, where at least 20 of these creatures, both male and female, all of different sizes, were staring at him intently. Off to the side, he spotted a pile of bones and he thought for sure that his day was done. As it turned out, the creature simply regarded the man as an oddity and watched him through part of the day, but as the day wore on, they became increasingly disinterested in him until he was able to work his way to the edge of the camp and then run for it. He ran for 45 miles non-stop. He made his way back to the village where he was found by a Catholic missionary. It took him three weeks to recover, and at first he refused to even speak of the incident. Finally, he relayed his story to the priest, which is how we know of it today. This story is very interesting because it's one of those few accounts that report someone seeing multiple Bigfoot creatures, in fact, an entire tribe of them, all different ages, all living together. That's unusual. And it kind of addresses one of those things that's always stuck in my mind. If there is a Bigfoot, would there not have to be families of Bigfoots? Young, rebellious teenagers sneaking down to the edge of town. Grown-ups, old ones that die. There just seems to be no physical evidence, but then again, we are talking about a very big, wide-open world, even when we're just referring to the Pacific Northwest. In Washington state alone, there are millions of acres of wild terrain that are covered in dense forest. It is by far a wild country. There could be many animals living there, and we may never know some of them. The one-time president of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, G.W. Gill, has said, quote, Either the most complex and sophisticated hoax in the history of anthropology has continued for centuries without being exposed, or the most manlike and largest non-human primate on Earth has managed to survive in parts of North America and remains undiscovered by modern science. And that's a pretty interesting quote because it drills the whole Bigfoot phenomenon down to an either-or situation. It may or may not be 100% true in either case, but it does indicate the walls that you come up against when you start looking into something like Bigfoot. Either this is a hoax, and if it is, it's a long-standing 100-year-old one, or there is actually a primate that we don't know about that lives in North America, and it is possible. In Greek, the word cryptozoology means study of hidden animals. 
the mountain gorilla was only discovered in 1902, the giant squid in 1981. Every year, almost 20,000 new species are described by the world's scientists. Scientist and explorer John Hart in 2007 first described what locals call the Lesula monkey in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Their existence was confirmed in 2008 when tribes of the monkeys were discovered in the wild, and they are beautiful, with golden-ticked fur around their face and piercing human-like eyes. No, they're not 8 feet tall and as large as a Bigfoot, but... It does make a point that new species are discovered all the time, and an animal as large as a Bigfoot could easily hide in the Pacific Northwest. The majority of mainstream scientists have historically and continue to discount the evidence of Bigfoot, considering it to be a general combination of folklore, misidentification, and hoaxes. On the Tool River Reservation in California, petroglyphs created by the group of Yoko Indians at the site called Painted Rock are alleged by some to depict a group of Bigfoots called the Family. The local tribespeople call the largest of the glyphs Hairy Man, and the petroglyphs are estimated to be between 500 and 1,000 years old. About one-third of all Bigfoot sightings happen in the Pacific Northwest, with the remaining reports spread out through the rest of North America. A story from 1924, referred to as the Battle of Ape Canyon, tells us of miners being attacked in their cabin by large hairy ape men that threw rocks onto the cabin roof from a nearby cliff after one of the miners shot a Bigfoot with a rifle. The men at the mining camp fought the creatures off for days. Eventually, the attack subsided and the men retreated. And in a story straight out of some twisted Scooby-Doo episode, we hear a tale of Bigfoots harassing and killing people within the Emerald Triangle region of the marijuana growing areas in California in the 1970s through the 1990s, specifically an alleged murder of three migrant workers in 1993. Investigative journalist David Holthouse attributes these stories to the illegal drug operations using the local Bigfoot lore to scare away any competition, specifically superstitious immigrants, and that the high rate of murder and missing persons in the area is attributed much more to human actions than any Bigfoots. And I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for that pesky investigative journalist. Other stories of the Northern California Bigfoot come to us from the gold miners of the 1849 gold rush. Many of the old miner 49ers reported seeing giant man-like creatures covered in hair who left 17-inch tracks in the wet sands along the creek sides where they panned for gold. One of the most interesting stories took place in July of 1884. The story goes that a group of railroad workers captured a young Bigfoot along the Fraser River on the outskirts of Yale, British Columbia. The creature was injured by a passing train, then captured by the workers, who kept the ape-like teenager and nicknamed it Jacko. Jacko was just under 5 feet tall, he had long arms, and was extremely strong. 
All traces of the creature eventually vanished, and although hundreds of witnesses were said to have seen Jacko where he was kept in a local jail, the account has been called everything from a hoax to a runaway and we'll probably never know. Some explanations for Bigfoot sightings include the obvious, like bears. American black bears, which are the animal probably most often mistaken as a Bigfoot, have been observed and recorded walking upright. Often, this is the result of an injury, and sometimes they will stand up to get a better view of the terrain around them. When bears walk at a certain pace, their back foot will land at the back of their front footprint, making the footprint appear twice as long as it actually is. This formation of prints also mimics a two-legged creature, because for every footfall of each four feet, only two prints are left. A little bit of erosion to wear away the pointed claws can make the front of the foot look more like toes, and these prints may very often be mistaken for a Bigfoot walking on two feet upright, rather than a bear walking on four feet prone. An upright adult black bear stands roughly five to seven feet tall, and a grizzly bear stands roughly eight to nine feet tall, both within the range of Bigfoot reports. Some have proposed that sightings of Bigfoot may simply be people observing and misidentifying known great apes, such as chimpanzees, gorillas, or orangutans, that have escaped from captivity, such as zoos or private owners. This explanation is often proposed in relation to the Florida skunk ape, as many argue that the subtropical climate of the southeastern United States could potentially support a population of escaped apes. Bigfoot proponents Grover Krantz and Jeffrey Bourne both believe that Bigfoot could be a relic population of the thought-to-be-extinct ape species Gigantopithecus. According to Bourne, Gigantopithecus may have followed the many other species of animals that migrated across the Bering Land Bridge to the Americas. However, no Gigantopithecus fossils have been found in the Americas. In Asia, the only recovered fossils have been of mandibles and teeth, leaving uncertainty about Gigantopithecus's locomotion. Krantz has argued that Gigantopithecus blackie could have been bipedal based on his extrapolation from the shape of its mandible. However, the relevant part of the mandible is not present in any fossils. The more popular view is that Gigantopithecus was quadrupedal, and its enormous size would have made it difficult for it to adopt to a bipedal gait. Primatologist John R. Napier and anthropologist Gordon Strassenberg have suggested a species of Paranthropus as a possible candidate for Bigfoot's identity, such as Paranthropus robustus, which is a gorilla-like crested skull and bipedal giant, despite the fact that fossils of Paranthropus are found only in Africa. Perhaps the most well-known evidence for Bigfoot is the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is a film recorded by Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin on October 20, 1967. The 59.5 second long video has become an iconic piece of Bigfoot lore, and continues to be highly scrutinized, analyzed, and debated to this day. It was filmed in an area called Bluff Creek in Northern California. Some argue that the film provides no supportive data or scientific value, 
while others believe that the subject in the film is proof of an unrecognized hominid living in North America. Anyone with even a passing interest in Bigfoot has seen the Patterson-Gimlin film, and most people have at least seen a still image of it, as this creature looks back over its right shoulder toward the filmmakers and stumbles along behind a bunch of tree fall. It's a strange video for sure, and when you watch it, it, there's something convincing about it. It doesn't look... I mean, people say that it looks like a guy in a suit, but it really doesn't. It has breasts, and who that is going to fake a Bigfoot film is going to get a female Bigfoot costume with breasts on it. It just seems a little strange. The way that the creature walks, never locking its knees, gives a very strange bouncy kind of glide to the way that it moves. The analysts who have dove into this film say that this creature is taking six foot strides and that it's easily seven feet tall and that his head sort of swivels and the way that it moves doesn't appear to be a man in a costume. It looks like you can see muscles through the fur and the sort of bare feet in a few spots at the bottom of the feet as the thing moves. To me, it looks genuine and it looks kind of weird in the strangest way. It doesn't mean that it's definitive proof, but it looks more legit. And part of it is that it's a little blurry and grainy and so it makes it hard to make out. There's something odd about the creature's eyes. It almost looks like the fur is a different color around the eyes, something like that. It's always been something that's that struck me as extremely odd. It's one of those things that it seems like if it was going to be faked, that it would look a lot more real than this. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it just looks so awkward and so strange. And it, it doesn't seem like that it would be the type of thing that, that would be faked. It doesn't look like the way that you would imagine it to look if someone were going to fake it. It just looks a little too awkward, a little too strange. It just doesn't quite come across as as being well done. It, you know, it looks like uh, it looks like the way that you would capture something wild, just sort of by accident and bouncy and jumping up and down. And I don't know if the whole shaky camera thing is taking a cue from that uh, or not, but it does lend a little bit of strange, awkward kind of credibility to the film. But at the same time, when you really dive into Patterson Gimlin. Patterson said he became interested in Bigfoot after reading an article by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine, December 1959. In 1961, Sanderson published his encyclopedic Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, a worldwide survey of accounts of Bigfoot-type creatures, and he included tracks in the Bluff Creek area which heightened the interest of Roger Patterson. Both Patterson and Gimlin had been rodeo riders and amateur boxers, and Patterson was a struggling inventor who had invented some hoop-type toy invention, which he tried to sell several times. He had spoke to many locals regarding the Bigfoot sightings, and the most recent of these reports at the time of the filming was at the nearby Blue Creek Mountain Track which was investigated by journalist John Green and Bigfoot hunter Rene Dahenden, as well as archaeologist Don Abbott around 1967. As the story goes, early in the afternoon of Friday, October 20th, 1967, 
Patterson and Gimlin were riding generally northeast or upstream on horseback along the east bank of Bluff Creek. At some time between 1 and 2 p.m., they came to an overturned tree with a large root system at a turn in the creek. When they rounded it, they saw a log jam and a crow's nest left over from the flood of 64 when they spotted the figure behind it nearly simultaneously. It was either crouching beside the creek to their left or standing there on the opposite bank. Gimlin later described himself as in a mild state of shock upon seeing the creature. Patterson initially estimated its height at six and a half feet tall, maybe seven feet, and later raised his estimate to seven and a half feet. Some later analysts, anthropologist Grover Krantz among them, have suggested Patterson's later estimate was about one foot too tall and Gimlin's estimate was about six feet closer to the mark. The film shows what Patterson and Gimlin claimed was a large, hairy, bipedal, ape-like figure with short, silvery brown or dark reddish-brown hair covering most of its body, including its prominent breasts. The figure in the film generally matches the descriptions of Bigfoot given by others who have seen it, especially in this area. Patterson estimated he was about 25 feet away from the creature at his closest. Patterson said that the horse reared up upon seeing the creature and Patterson spent a few seconds to get out of the saddle and control the horse then get around to the other side, bringing his filming camera from the saddlebag before he could run toward the figure while operating the camera. He yelled cover me to Gimlin meaning to get the gun out. Gimlin crossed the creek on horseback after Patterson had run beyond it. The figure walked away from them to a distance about 120 feet before Patterson began to run after it. The resulting film is about a minute long and 16 frames per second. It's initially quite shaky until Patterson got about 80 feet from the figure. At that point the figure glanced over its right shoulder and Patterson fell to his knees. This corresponds to frame 264. Patterson later told researcher John Green that the creature's expression was one of contempt and disgust. You know how it is when the umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game? That's the way it felt the creature was looking at us. Shortly after this point, the steady middle portion of the film begins containing the famous look back frame of 352. Patterson said it turned a total of I think three times. The other times therefore being before the filming began and or while he was running with his finger off the trigger. Shortly after glancing over his shoulder on the film, the creature disappeared behind a grove of trees for 14 seconds, then reappeared in the film's final 15 seconds after Patterson moved 10 feet to a better vantage point, fading into the trees again and being lost to view at a distance of 265 feet, the creature vanishes and the reel of film runs out. Gimlin remounted and followed the creature on horseback, keeping his distance until it disappeared around a bend in the road 300 yards away. Patterson called back to him at that point, feeling vulnerable on foot without a rifle because he feared the creature's mate might approach. The entire encounter had lasted less than two minutes. Gimlin and Patterson rounded up Patterson's horse, which had run off in the opposite direction before the filming began. Patterson got his second roll of film from his saddlebag and filmed the tracks. The men tracked the creature for between one and three miles, but lost it in heavy undergrowth. 
They went to their campsite three miles south, picked up plaster, returned to the site, measured the creature's step length, and made two plaster casts, one each of the best quality right and left footprints. Now there has been some discussion about the ability to process the film. Apparently it was Kodachrome 2 movie film and that there were only a few West Coast labs known to possess the $60,000 equipment to develop such film and that none of them did work over the weekend. Although Patterson's brother-in-law, Al Atley says he doesn't remember where he took the film for development or from which place he picked it up. Critics claim that too much happened between the filming at 1.15 at the earliest and the filmmaker's arrival at Willow Creek at 6.30 p.m. at the latest and wrote that they would have not been able to get the film developed before the weekend ensued when none of those places would have been open for doing the job. People who defend the film say that although this may have been a tight time frame, it could have been done. Other criticisms of the film and the men's claim center around the horses. Chris Murphy wrote that he had confirmed with Bob Gimlin that Patterson rode a small quarter horse, which he owned, and not his Welsh pony, Peanuts. Also that Patterson had arranged to borrow a horse by the name of Chico from Bob Hieronymus for Gimlin to use. Gimlin did not have a horse that was suitable or old enough for the expedition, and Hieronymus stated that Chico, a middle-aged gelding, wouldn't jump or buck, as was claimed by Patterson. Researcher Grover Krantz writes that Patterson had the film developed as soon as possible, and at first he thought he had brought in proof of Bigfoot's existence, and he truly expected the scientific community to be amazed. But only a few scientists were willing to even look at the film. Usually, these showings were at scientific organizations, and they were arranged at the behest of zoologist, author, and media figure Ivan Sanderson, a supporter of the Patterson film. Showings of the film occurred in Vancouver, New York, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and later in Oregon, and most scientists expressed various reservations, although some said they were intrigued by it. Patterson made a deal with the BBC allowing the use of his footage in a docudrama made in return for letting him tour with their docudrama into which he melded material from his own documentary and additional material he and Al Diatli had filmed. The film was shown in local movie houses around the Pacific Northwest and Midwest and it is estimated that Patterson made about $75,000 from the venture. The touring film generated enough publicity to allow Patterson to appear on some popular television shows such as Merv Griffin, Joey Bishop, and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Articles about the film appeared in Argosy Magazine, National Wildlife Magazine, and Reader's Digest. Throughout 1968, Patterson toured with his film and appeared on local radio and TV shows wherever the film was played. Patterson eventually sold overlapping distribution rights for the film to several different parties, which resulted in costly legal entanglements. After Patterson's death, Ron Olson took over the operation of Northwest Research and changed its name to the North American Wildlife Research Association. 
He worked full-time compiling reports, soliciting volunteers, and organizing several small expeditions to search for Bigfoot. One Bigfoot trap Olson and his crew built still survives. Olson continued to lobby the company to produce a Bigfoot film. In 1974, A&E finally agreed, and it was released in 1975, entitled Bigfoot, Man or Beast. It is a glorious piece of 1970s filmmaking. It features the 16mm film footage from the Patterson-Gimlin film, and it also has Bigfoot researchers John Green, Fred Beck, and a very sincere Robert Morgan who go into the field to search and follow clues looking for Bigfoot. I'll post the video so that you can watch it in the Dark Intel files on Patreon. The Renegade Files Patreon page is available through a link in the show notes and from a link on our website. I have tons of cool stuff there for you. If you want to help the show stay free and ad-free, you can give us a little bit of money on Patreon. And for that, you get tons of extra content, behind-the-scene footage, cool videos, bonus audio, and neat things that I've found like uh, files of my bizarre internet finds, freedom of information documents regarding some of the cases. Every episode has a Dark Intel Files post on Patreon, so you get all the deep research, film, videos, and information that I've collected in process of doing the episode research. So it's always free to check out Patreon. Go look at it and see what you think, and I'll see you in there. Thanks. Another cool site I'll link to in the Dark Intel Files is the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, or BFRO which was founded in 1995 and is claimed to be the only scientific research organization exploring the Bigfoot Sasquatch mystery. It has recently added reports, sightings by region, pre-Columbian early American legends, sound recordings. There's a link that you can report a sighting. It has classic Bigfoot and Sasquatch documentaries there you can watch. It has an article on the Patterson-Gimlin film, whether it's a hoax or not. It has a list of 1970s documentaries on YouTube. And I'm going to read just a little bit from the homepage, which describes what are the undisputed facts about the Sasquatch mystery. It is a fact that for more than 400 years, people have reported seeing large hair-covered man-like animals in the wilderness areas of North America. It is a fact that these sightings of these animals continue today. Real or not, these reports are often made by people of unimpeachable character. For over 70 years, people have been finding, photographing, and casting sets of very large human-shaped tracks. Most are discovered by chance in remote areas. These tracks continue to be found to this day. The cultural histories of many Native American and First Nation peoples include stories and beliefs about non-human, wild men. Many of these descriptions bear a striking resemblance to the hairy man-like creatures reported today. These are just some of the facts. There is, however, much disagreement as to what these facts mean. To many, these facts taken together suggest the presence of an animal, probably a primate, that exists today in a very low population density. If true, this species, having likely evolved alongside humans, became astonishingly adept at avoiding human contact through a process of natural selection. 
To others, these same facts point to a cultural phenomenon kept alive today through a combination of misidentification of known animals, wishful thinking, and the deliberate fabrication of evidence. The beef row and its members take the former view. So, that's a cool site. I'll link to it in the Dark Intel files, or you can just check it out at bfro.net. Another relative of Bigfoot is the skunk ape said to inhabit the forests and swamps of the southeastern United States, most notably in Florida. The skunk ape is usually described as being bipedal, an ape-like creature, 5 to 7 feet tall, covered in mottled reddish-brown hair, and the skunk ape is often reported to be smaller in stature compared to a traditional Bigfoot from the northern U.S., It's also described as having a very distinctive foul odor similar to a skunk, hence the name. The skunk ape has been a part of Florida, Georgia, and Alabama folklore since the European settler period. The Seminole culture includes stories of a foul-smelling, physically powerful, and secretive creature called the St. Kapkaki, a name which roughly translates as cannibal giant. And once again, we see the skinwalker cannibal connection to these giant bipedal ape-like cryptids. The aforementioned BFRO or Bigfoot Field Research Organization has archived over 300 sightings of the skunk ape in Florida, with an additional 137 from Georgia and 100 from Alabama. Most sightings reported ranged from the 1960s into the modern day, though folklore of an ape-like creature has existed in the region for much longer. In 1818, a report in what is now Apalachicola, Florida, spoke of a man-sized monkey raiding food stores and stalking fishermen along the shore. In 1942, a man in Suwannee County reported a similar creature rushing out from the brush line while he was driving down an isolated road. It was alleged to have grabbed onto his vehicle and beat on the running board and the door for half a mile before letting go. In Putnam County, Florida, beginning in the 1940s, there were a number of sightings of a creature that came to be known as the Bardin Booger. Reports of this skunk ape were particularly common in the 1950s until the 1970s. By 1974, sightings of a large, foul-smelling, hairy, ape-like creature which ran upright on two legs were reported in suburban neighborhoods in Miami-Dade County that border large wilderness expanses such as the Everglades and the Big Cypress National Preserve. Several notable sightings occurred in the 1970s, including one corroborated account by two Palm Beach County Sheriff deputies named Marvin Lewis and Ernie Milner. They reported that tall, ape-like animals stalked them through a grove before they fired upon them to ward them off. Following a trail of footprints, these two recovered hair snagged on a barbed wire fence line that had been pushed down. In 1977, after a string of sightings by dozens of people across several counties, a bill was proposed to the state legislature to make it illegal to take, possess, harm, or molest anthropoids or humanoid animals. More reports continued into the 1980s, including a report where a college psychology teacher cited an upright, ape-like animal with what was reported to be non-human body language and movements in Alashua County, Florida. 
Sightings became more common again in the 1990s, many by motorists going down various rural roads that ran through the Big Cypress National Preserve. Several reports were made by wildlife tour bus operators, many of them with multiple guests corroborating the sightings of these upright creatures darting across the road or moving from the tall grasses out into the cypress forests. One of the first pictures of the skunk ape was photographed by Ochapi Fire Control District Chief Vince Doer. After watching the creature walk across a road, Doer stopped his car and saw it head off into the woods. Grabbing his camera, he snapped a photograph of a large, rusty-colored creature walking away from him. In total, within two weeks, upwards of 50 people reported seeing this animal with a consistent description within a 10-mile stretch of the Big Cypress National Preserve. In 2000, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office received two anonymous photographs depicting what was said to be a large, hairy, ape-like creature near the Mayaka River State Park. The photos were accompanied by a letter from someone who reported that the creature had been stealing fruit from the trees in their backyard which bordered the park. They said they were afraid that the creature was an escaped orangutan from some zoo and that it might hurt some of their family. Dubbed the Mayaka skunk ape, these photographs remain a controversial topic to this day. In 2015, a video taken by a kayaker named Matthew McCammy at the Lettuce Lake Park in Hillsborough County, Florida, shows an upright ape-like creature wading through a cypress marsh. The movements and hair of the creature were remarked as being incredibly realistic, and the location would have made a hoax extremely difficult. Finally, one of the most amazing stories of Bigfoot comes from what has become known as the Human-Bigfoot War of 1855. At this time, in an area of North America now known to be part of Oklahoma and Arkansas, where the once mighty Choctaw Nation of the Native Americans ruled over everything they saw, there was an apparent scourge of unseen bandits venturing from the wilderness into their camps to steal vegetables and even livestock. The fruits and vegetables grown and gathered by the Choctaw Nation and the livestock they tended to was hard-earned, and any of it stolen left a thorn in their side. They set up camps to try to catch the thieves, but were never able to. It may have ended there, but the night thieves eventually graduated to stealing people, mostly children, and this provoked a fierce reaction among the tribes. The tribes formed a posse, some of their biggest, strongest warriors and best horsemen. Thirty of them left one night on horseback and headed out into the Choctaw Nation, led by half-Choctaw General Joshua LaFour. Their mission was to find the thieves and put an end to their plundering. They headed out into the dark wilderness on horseback in the early morning hours, leaving their tribal capital, Tuscaloma. They were fully armed with high-powered rifles and pistols, and this menacing group no doubt believed that this would be a simple matter of finding a bunch of country rubes and routing them out. They rode slowly for eight hours nonstop, into the next day through the blazing summer sun. Finally, they stopped at a location near the Clove River to rest and eat before continuing for the rest of their day's journey. The next day, they rode for about 14 hours, 
to a location where scouts had said the bandits seemed to be the most active. It was at this spot that Lafour gave the order to suddenly halt. Through his telescope, he peered off into the great distance. The general said he could see something moving ahead, but he was not sure that it was the enemy. Finally, he confirmed what they all had thought. Ahead, I see monsters. The group of 30 warriors sprung to action as he gave the battle cry. Their horses beating and bleeding, rifles raised, war cries filling the air. But their powerful drive was soon brought to an incredible halt as their horses began to rear and buck and panic. A horrible stench suddenly filled their nostrils, and the flailing horses sent several of them scrambling on the ground, all of them hacking, coughing, gasping for breath. They stood amid the dust, and in a clearing, they saw what could only be described as an earthen mound, and around it were strewn numerous corpses that held clouds of flies. No human warriors were visible, but nearby they saw three enormous ape-like creatures covered with hair, so tall that they dwarfed the tallest among them. These giant, hair-covered ape-like men stood with no fear, staring at the warriors. Lafleur gave the order, and the men charged, pistols and swords and rifles in hand, howling and screaming. One of the ape-like creatures stepped forward and lashed out with a massive hand, to swat the general's horse on the side of the head with a thunderous blow and sent the animal crumbling to the ground, dead where it stopped. Lafleur tumbled to the ground but was soon on his feet with his gun blazing. He hit the wild man several times but it barely slowed down. Even after taking several gunshots, the animal barely bled, seemed to have felt nothing, and lunged forward to grab the general by the head and remove it from his neck. Upon seeing their general slump headless to the ground as a vicious ape-like creature loomed over his carcass, the men drew their rifles and launched a flurry of gunfire. Two of the creatures escaped. One fell to the ground, was attacked by the warriors, and his head cut off with a hunting knife. Several of the men stood guard, to watch for the creatures who had escaped in case they returned. The rest of the men buried what was left of the carcasses and their dead fallen friends. They returned to the village with the head of one of the beasts as their trophies, and their village was never set upon by the creatures again. This is, without a doubt, one of the most amazing accounts of any Bigfoot story I've ever heard in my life. So when it comes to theories of what Bigfoot might be, probably the most popular and the one that makes the most sense is the North American ape hypothesis. And this is the one that says it's likely that it's some relic species of Gigantopithecus or some unknown species of giant ape that persists in the wilderness and we only get a glimpse of one every now and then. Now, these kind of things sound far less plausible to someone who only ever lives in the city and stays in the town. All you need to do is take a flight from Texas to California, 
or from Southern California into British Columbia, and you will be staggered at how much vast, wild, absolute, untamed areas there are in this country. Go from one side of it to the other in a plane and look out, and even flying from one end of Florida to the other, you'll see so much wild territory that it just boggles the mind. We tend to imagine that we are so densely populated in this world, but that's because we're all stacked up along the coastlines and piled up in the cities, and everywhere we look, we see a person or a car, and we imagine that the whole world is like that. The whole world is definitely not like that. The whole continent of North America absolutely is not like that. In fact, the planet is by far not as populated as they would have you believe. If all of the people in the entire planet all went to Antarctica at the same time, we would barely cover one-tenth of it. The world is a wide open place, and there's a lot of wild territory, and there are species that we discover every day. Thousands of them a year, new species we never knew existed. Not all of them are as big as a Bigfoot, but some of them are bigger, and, you know, it just depends. So the North American ape hypothesis is definitely one at least plausible explanation, particularly when we take into account that these Bigfoot legends persist going back thousands of years. Another theory is that Bigfoot is human, so that it could be some escaped wild man, and that when people see it, they're shocked and they're hairy because they don't shave, and I don't know. That, that seems like it is possible and that some of the stories over the years could be exactly that, particularly some of those in the Wild West where you have somebody that might be like a mountain man who's lived off the grid for a while and when you see him, he looks like a monster. That's definitely possible. The Native Americans claim that Bigfoot was a forest spirit and that he doesn't live in the physical world and that would explain a lot. Uh, it seems that it's possible that a supernatural guardian of the earth or the woodlands might be perceived at certain junctures in, in the human experience. So that's definitely, it's definitely one of those things that it can't be discounted, you know, in the same way that it can't be used to prove anything. In some parts of North America, Native Americans regard Bigfoot as a supernatural being, a messenger of the natural world. This is similar to the way that indigenous peoples of Nepal and Tibet view the Yeti. A spiritual entity. Another theory is that Bigfoot is an alien. And you know, I, I remember being a kid and watching uh, Six Million Dollar Man, one of my favorite shows, to reveal my age. And I was a little kid, so at least a little kid. But there was an episode when the when uh, Six Million Dollar Man sort of jumped the shark and they had Bigfoot show up on there and Six Million Dollar Man chased him around through the woods of California. And in the end, Bigfoot hopped on a spaceship and flew off. And as, as a kid, I was like, what the heck? <laughs> uh, you know, this is ridiculous. I even thought so as a kid. And I'm not sure about the Bigfoot alien theory. So some people believe Bigfoot may be an alien species. He's dropped off here by visitors from another world. And... You know, that would explain why we never find any babies or families and that we see them one at a time. It is true that there's a correlation between increases in Bigfoot sightings and increases in UFO sightings. That doesn't necessarily mean that UFOs are dropping Bigfoots off, but it is interesting that the two things kind of collide every now and then. 
Another avenue of this theory that I heard someone mention was that these Bigfoot type creatures could be dropped off by the aliens to run around here and do their thing and then be collected later to analyze their biocomposition or whatever. And if you were going to do that, the best creature to kind of pull it off with would be some big don't mess with me apex predator mammal, right? I don't know. It just seems like that's grasping for straws. Also, is Bigfoot a myth? Is it just one of those myths that's so persistent that people have it in their mind? And when it becomes a part of the popular consciousness, then we sort of see it in the pareidolia effect, or we see a bear sort of stand up and think that that's the Bigfoot. I mean, it could be a lot of things, but a combination of myth and an active imagination that definitely could account for at least a lot of the Bigfoot sightings. Another thing is people say, then why don't we find any bones? Well, finding bones in the wild is a pretty rare thing. I, you know, I grew up going in the woods. I've grown up camping my whole life. I've, I've been out in the wilderness, you know, maybe not as much as some, but a lot more than other people's. And you just don't find bones everywhere. You know, look at all the animals that die. You'd think there'd be bones piled up everywhere. There's not. Those bones are a source of calcium. They're eaten by rodents. They're eaten by scavengers, raccoons you know birds they they're broken down and they go back into the earth and they become buried with leaves and they decompose and there's deer there's bobcats there's raccoons why don't we find those bones strewn all over the place and yeah you do find bones sometimes cattle skull in the south texas desert but you don't find bones all the time that's just a fact so it's not really a a valid argument to say that there's no bigfoot because we've never found bigfoot bones I know I've said it before, but as recently as 2017, a new great ape species was found in, I think, Sumatra, a colony of 800 orangutans that were uh, isolated individuals and a completely different species, frizzier hair, a different color, different facial features, and just a totally new species or at least strain of orangutans in Indonesia. And as recently as 2004, a giant species of ape was discovered in, once again in the Congo, said to be up to six feet tall, and local villagers say that they are ferocious and even capable of killing lions. The discovery baffled scientists, and they were only able to come up with three controversial possibilities to explain the origin of these new mysterious giant, very strong, very aggressive apes. One, they're a new species of ape. Two, they're giant chimpanzees, much larger than any other chimpanzee, but they behave like gorillas. Or three, they could be hybrids, the product of gorillas mating with chimpanzees. So once again, a new species of primate discovered in an area where people have been exploring for decades. In the end, Bigfoot is one of those stories that persists. It's been around for ages. We have Native American tribes who all have stories of ape-like creatures living wild in the woods. We have other cultures who have stories of their versions of the Bigfoot. And it's one of those things that's just not likely to go away, even though we don't ever seem to find the proof of it. I remember talking to my nephew one time when he was a kid and he loved Bigfoot and he loved the Bigfoot TV shows. And, and my nephew was watching one and I came in 
And I said, you know, what Bigfoot show are you watching? And my brother who was there, my nephew's dad says, the same Bigfoot show you've seen a hundred times since you were a kid. And we both kind of laughed because that's exactly right. They're these long drawn out shows that hint at some discovery, but never really reveal anything. And it's because the, the mystery of Bigfoot remains a mystery. I mean, when it comes right down to it, what do I think? What do I think personally? Well, I tend to fall into the camp that I do believe this is a big world, and there are a lot of wild areas far more remote and wild than people who never go out in the woods imagine. At the same time, in order for there to be a legitimate colony and a species of giant ape in the woods, there would have to be generations of them. There would have to be a breeding population. There would have to be plenty of them. There couldn't just be one. So that lends itself to a long list of problems when you just can't find any of them, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible that you can't find any of them and that they could be there. You know, there's a few other things. Large primates typically don't live in cold areas because they require a lot of food and they require a lot of energy. They need fresh running water. They need protein. They need carbohydrates. And you don't have a lot of that in the Pinewood Forest. Go into the Pinewood Forest in the northwest of America and find a carbohydrate. I mean, you know, you have to eat a lot of pine cones to get enough nuts to, I mean, it's just, there's not a lot of uh, broadleaf veggies up there. There's not a lot of roots. There are, but, and there are berries and there are certain things, but there's a, there's, there's not a dense amount of of uh, nutrition in those pine wood forests. Doesn't mean that there isn't any, there is. But to sustain a population of not only apes, but gigantic eight, nine foot tall apes, you would need, you're gonna have to have some food, you know? So it, it doesn't mean that I don't believe it. It's just that it, it strains, you know, my imagination to wonder exactly what's going on here. These are stories that by and large are anecdotal. Someone saw something, someone heard something, someone saw a footprint, a footprint that could be a lot of things. I mean, it, it doesn't, it, it's not conclusive and it's not damning. It's just sort of, uh, it's just vague information that, that we hear. And when we talk about people that go out to research Bigfoot or go look for Bigfoot, it's a bunch of guys making more racket than anything you've ever seen. They're hooting and hollering and they're driving four-wheelers and they're they're hooking up drones and they're making as much noise. You know, if you've ever been out in the woods and heard somebody camping a few miles away, you can hear every word they say. And any Sasquatch worth his salt is going to be 100 miles away by the time these jack wagons come rolling up the trail with all the racket they make in the process of looking for a Bigfoot. I heard someone suggest that, you know, what are we in the fourth or fifth season of Bigfoot Hunters or whatever on the Discovery Channel? How much does it cost to produce one of those episodes? Couple million dollars easily. So that would be $18 million or something that we're at as far as paying for this show so far. That could buy a lot of trail cameras. That could buy a lot of, you know, motion activated camouflage battery powered cameras we could put. You know, it just seems that there there would be other ways. Is the TV show made activated or is the TV show made to sell T-shirts and advertising, right? 
if you were really going to use those resources to find Bigfoot, we've got drones, we've got tons of cameras, we've got digital equipment and recording. And I think that in the final analysis, if you're really going to capture an elusive, unknown, as yet undiscovered species, you're going to have to do it in some stealthy kind of way like that. A hidden camera, an array of cameras, some version of motion video or something like that. Not a bunch of guys on, you know, Suzuki four-wheelers in headbands driving through the woods making howling noises. So, I think that it's possible. I think it's interesting. I think it's an enduring legend for a reason. I've loved Bigfoot and I've loved the idea of Bigfoot since I was a kid. I've been out in the woods enough in my life to know that this is a wild, big world and that there's plenty of room. There's far more open territory in this country than we tend to imagine because we're all sort of stacked up in the cities and along the coastlines and we're told all the time that the world's overpopulated but that's people with an agenda trying to sell you something telling you that yes of course we're populated but there's also a lot of room here I think it's interesting I think it's a cool topic it's one that I had fun researching I hope you liked listening to it This was a little more of an informal type of an episode. I didn't break it down into chapters and I didn't have a a big reveal or a big uh, controversy. It's just that there's a lot of stories here. This could be several episodes and we'll do more about cryptids and we'll do more about some specific mysterious monster type things in the future. I just wanted to dive into this subject. I wanted to go down and dirty and tell you some stories about Bigfoot and see about what's out there and find out what we think. So... I think it's a mystery. I think it's still a mystery. I'm open to the idea. You know, I think that the fact that we discover so many new species every day is is just good evidence that it would be possible that we could discover something like a Bigfoot. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to fit exactly the, the legends and the stories. And is it going to be like Harry and the Hendersons and we're going to walk him out onto the White House lawn and he's going to laugh a goofy laugh and we're all gonna high five him and (laughs) then he's gonna be interviewed by wolf blitzer or whatever so i don't know i don't know how the how the whole story unfolds and maybe it'll be one that we're that'll always be a mystery and those kind of things are cool too so thanks a lot for coming along on this sort of informal jaunt into the world of bigfoot Hope you had some fun. Hope you learned something. And I can't wait to see you next time when we get to do it again. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, rebel child.